Welcome again to BadQuaker.com. We're going to do an interview today. I had promised this to you some weeks back. This is an active duty U.S. Army major, originally from Birmingham, Alabama. He's been married for the last 12 years, has four children. Um, He's held a variety of positions in the Army, including cavalry platoon leader and uh, armor company commander. Um, Mike, welcome to the show. I want to thank you for coming on with me and doing the interview today. Thanks for having me, Ben. I'm, I'm honored that you uh, think I've got a little bit of something to share with uh, people that might be interested to hear. I've known Mike uh, on the Internet, that is, for a couple years now, and I, the first time I saw him uh, posting on the Internet and started reading his posts, I knew, uh, man, this guy is not your normal, average, everyday guy out there just trudging through life. This guy's got something on the ball. Uh, Mike, tell us, you're, you're active duty Army now. When did you first decide that the Army was uh, was for you? Oh, I was probably about five running around with a Mattel machine gun in my backyard. <laughs> now, um, I was really torn, um, but then I had a uh, decision to, to make, you know, coming out of high school, what am I going to do with my life? Um, I've had some pretty good success with what... Uh, Everybody told me I should do. I mean, I was an Eagle Scout. I had a decent GPA. Um, I'd gone to Russia as a student ambassador. So, you know, I, it was great that I had all these things that people said were, were good to do. Uh, not a lot of scholarship money forthcoming from that. Mm. We were, uh, we, we weren't going to be able to afford to send me to school if I didn't find a way to do it, put it that way. Yeah. So, uh, and a lot of it was personal. Um, I didn't really feel personally like I knew what my boundaries were. Like I knew what I was capable of. I didn't feel like I'd really been tested. Um, so my initial reason for joining the Army was really more to find out about myself, um, to test myself against something uh, that I respected. Now, what time frame was that? What year, roughly what years were that? I graduated high school in 93 and enlisted in October in the Reserves. In the year in the Reserves, I did three years of ROTC because that led to an ROTC scholarship. Um, Did another four and a half years. My my commitment for having taken the ROTC scholarship ended (laughs) November of 2001. uh, Wow. Wow, that's some timing right there. Yeah, well, what happened, (laughs) I was at Fort Hood and walked into the S2 shop that morning and Boom, they got it up on the TV. That's how I found out. Um, so I went into the boss and volunteered to extend my commitment because we, at the time, were um, the Army heads were at the time. This is this is way back when um, they kept two brigades kind of on semi alert status mm-hmm. so that we could react. Uh, one came from the 18th Airborne Corps, one of the, the light units. Um, and one came from a heavy unit, a tank heavy unit. And ours was, at the time, literally we had finished in August, uh, take, assuming the responsibility for a year uh, for the heavy response for the U.S. Army. So I knew if we were going to go anywhere and do anything because of this, it was going to be us. Yeah. Well, I went in the box and said, hey, I'll extend. Yeah, I, I, we just got through the train up. I want to go do this. Um, <laughs> the Army being the Army. Um, they, of course, accepted and then probably turned around and gave me the big green weenie. Because <laughs> uh, the unit did indeed go somewhere. They went to Kuwait. Um, but I wound up 
place back home in Fort Hood. Mm. So I went ahead and got up. I uh, did the guard thing. Um, but it was restless. I mean, I had a couple of jobs. I was a professional Boy Scout. I was, you get paid to be a Boy Scout, you know that? No, I didn't. I'm sure uh, you've you've done quite a bit of travel and everything. Have you been in uh, in South Asia uh, previously, as far as just visiting or on assignment or anything? I have not been to South Asia. I've been all over Europe, been all over the Middle East, uh, but South Asia is going to be new. Uh, which is one reason I'm excited. Um, it's not everybody that gets paid to live in the Himalayas. Right. Well, let me shift gears a little bit and ask you about something that people might be a little bit surprised at having me uh, at hearing me ask you this. But uh, tell me about your interest in permaculture. <laughs> oh, that's uh, that's pretty easy. Um, during my first deployment, uh, we had that you know it's sick. deployments are cyclic. You got a uh, real hard, fast pace, and then you have a few days off. Um, so I found Ron Hood's website. Which uh, re-inspired, re-inspired me uh, to get back into wilderness survival and 
yeah. one of those light bulb moments for me. Yeah. And he really introduced me to a concept that I think will carry me forward. It, it is as exciting to me as the Army was when I was a kid. The idea that you can take, because I come from a farming family, mm-hmm. um, not my immediate parents, but my grandparents and beyond, you were either a farmer, a preacher, or a teacher in my family. That was the only three professions we knew. Yeah. And I spent countless hours hearing my grandparents uh, tell me stories about how they farmed and see if we don't walk in the land that they used a four-mule span to plow. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking and southern Appalachians here, right? North Alabama, for the most part, for me, mm-hmm. um, and some East Tennessee, and how hard it was. And and I looked around at, at the farms today, and my brother's a farmer. He's got an ag degree from Auburn. He, he works for a farmer's co-op, manages stores for him. And it's, it's hard life. But you look at permaculture, and you look at how it answers the questions. Yeah. There's so many of the problems that we have now. And to me, it, go, it, it coincides, it runs an almost perfectly parallel track to my faith in that it inspires community, it inspires local community, it inspires um, energy, it inspires, um, it inspires the heart. It takes away the drudgery of farming because, make no mistake, a, a farmer... There's a reason kids were always running off to join something like uh, the army, get <laughs> off the farm. Yeah, yeah. It's you're you're literally fighting with the earth when you farm. You're wrestling it. So if I can create a, you know, we, we've lived as vagabonds now. I mean, my kids don't have anything else other than to be world vagabonds. Um, and there is no historical place for us to call home, as such. So my goal really is when, when, when the only thing has played out, when I have done what I need to do here, um, it's to create that family, that family place, mm-hmm. uh, that family place of identity, um, and it's going to be a permaculture place. And then when I when I have been able to do that, I want to share it with others. So probably spend the rest of my life, in some way, shape, or form, expounding on those ideas of community self-reliance, self-sufficiency, um, spiritual growth, and taking care of the resources that we've been given. Yeah, I was introduced to permaculture through Jack as well, uh, and Jack's podcast over at the Survival Podcast. And what struck me, uh, just like a lightning bolt, was that the concepts and the the, the, the precepts that, that permaculture is based on in a in a kind of a twisted way in my mind, maybe, and maybe I'm the only one that sees this, but it's exactly like the zero aggression principle in libertarianism, where instead of fighting the earth like you do in farming, you're looking at the plants, the way that they grow naturally, the way a forest grows naturally, and you're just adjusting the, the pre-existing formula that works. You're just adjusting that formula to grow things that, are more usable to us than just maple trees or whatever. Uh, and, and to me, it was just, the light bulb just came on. It's like, man, permaculture is like the agricultural version of libertarianism. It's the same thing. It's just taking that concept to another aspect of life. And 
And my faith is the same way. It's like uh, it, it fits that same exact pattern. You know, uh, Jesus is uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That It's exactly the same concept. Absolutely. It's, it's going, and not to get all Eastern mysticism on it, but it's to go with the flow. Yeah. It's to, go with, it's to go with the flow of the land, the resources, the energy. It's to go with, you know, my faith is to go with the flow of the relationship. Exactly. That. Uh, now, this kind of brings up a, a, a different question. Some people, especially people in the liber- in the liberty movement, and that's a pretty wide net. We've got anarchists and libertarians and con- uh, constitutionalists, and but among people in the in the liberty movement, uh, some are not comfortable with people in the military. Uh, have you had a problem balancing your your beliefs as a libertarian with your uh, duty as a uh, in the army? My beliefs as a libertarian um, have caused me some angst, <laughs> put it that way. <laughs> I'm actually a fairly recent convert to libertarianism. I'm still kind of finding my way um, politically. Where am I? Uh, am I an anarchist? Maybe. Am I an agorist? Maybe. Um, I've been really... I kind of found libertarianism through a back door. Um, if you know... Um, Oh, oh yeah, I'm yeah, Rob. yeah. He's actually a, a Navy captain. And, oh, um, really? He uh, he espoused he introduced me to the ideas like uh, resilient community mm-hmm. and uh, uh, dark nets, yeah, and concepts like that. And that kind of is what piqued my interest to look into it a little further. And I, you know, I'm close enough. I, I will never say I'm close, but I'm close enough to the, the circles of power. Mm-hmm. Um, as I get ready to, to start working for the State Department and people like that, um, it's no surprise to me what's going on in the world. Yeah. Um, or the stance that we've taken or why we've taken it. I have good friends um, that are deeply, deeply involved in politics at a very high level. Um, not politicians themselves, but guys who make it possible for them to do what they do. Right. And there is disillusioned as I am. Uh, in fact, one of them is going to come property hunting from Whitley uh, in Alabama over Christmas. Because hmm. uh, he's ready to bail, too. Um, but I, I'm not sure if that's I a look, I'm not sure if that's a scary sign or a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> um, I on a personal level, it's good. On a national level, I'm scared. Well, the image that came to my mind was brown stuff running down my leg. Um, it's not a good place to be where we're at right now. Mm-hmm. It just isn't. Um, and it doesn't matter whether we're talking D's or R's here. Right. We've just, as a nation, and in a lot of aspects, we as citizens bear the brunt of this, uh, we've gotten ourselves into a bad way. And there are no, I don't think there are any easy ways out left. Yeah. And the more I read and the more I study guys like Rothbard and Mises and and the others, um, the more I'm convinced that that system can work. Um, Yeah, you you had a podcast, a a couple of podcasts ago, and said that, you know, minarchists are the ones who who keep the little teddy bear. (laughs) Yeah. 
they have the, you know, the national defense or whatever still. Well, yeah, I, I've got a couple of little teddy bears still. Yeah. Uh, in my in my mental collection because I don't trust people. Yeah. And that comes from my faith. Um, so I do think there there has to be an entity capable of using force um, that we have to jointly agree to trust. Uh, right now, I think we've discovered that the, the entity that we've placed faith in, we can't have a whole lot of trust in. Right. And that's where a lot of our discontent comes from, is we're, we're frustrated that we've invested all the money and time and energy that we have, and we don't have a, a, a return on it. Uh, we just seem to be feeding a system that, that takes instead of a system that protects. Now, this brings up a question I really wanted to ask you. Uh, you know, we can go from best case to worst case scenario, but but considering a worst case scenario, what what do you really think the future of America is, and what considering the path that we've been going on, and, and what can we do to avoid that, if anything, in your opinion? Remember, I'm talking about my four kids and whatever grandkids they have for me. Um, so I've spent a little time thinking about it. Best case. Um, Things muzzle along as they have. Um, our, our abilities and our, our rights continue to erode. We wind up Europe light, or maybe even Europe, um, when it comes to things like guns and uh, socialized medicine. Uh, all of our standards of living drag down as a result. Uh, we become more and more, as a society, more and more internally focused. Um, Basically, where, where Europe is, they're, they're, it's not that we would become isolationist, it's that we wouldn't care. Mm-hmm. Our interest would continue to be the Paris Hilton's of the world. Um, and that's almost the worst case for me as well. Yeah. Um, worst case, the whole house of cards comes crumbling down. Uh, and I don't think it would be, you know, we've got these, uh, America's best defense is the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean. Yeah. I don't see the, even the Chinese who would have the best shot at it are not going to be able to amass a large enough force to physically occupy this country. Red Dawn ain't going to happen, guys. Right. It's going to be the gradual descent into chaos. Yeah, China's, in my opinion, China's a lot better off not invading us and making stuff and selling it to us and, you know, <laughs> taking our wealth. <laughs> Yeah, they're moving into Africa pretty quickly, too. Well, let me uh, shift gears again and ask you about homeschools. I know you're a supporter of homeschooling, and uh, maybe you can tell tell me your opinion about homeschooling and how it works in your family. And something else I wanted to ask you about is the phrase, third culture kids. Maybe you can share with our listeners about that as well. Sure. Um, we homeschool almost out of necessity. Um we travel so often. We've been married 12 years now. Uh, moving here to Monterey was our eighth move. Um, Nepal will be our ninth. We'll be there less than two years. We'll come back to the States. That next position will be 18 months. So if we tried to put kids in normal school, we would be constantly fighting with regulations, with mm-hmm. timing, with grades, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. 
fortunately, uh, the woman I married is an absolute angel. She was ordained by God to be an army wife. Uh, it really is a calling. And she is phenomenal at it. She has a real heart for, for soldiers and their families and helping them. She's also a phenomenal teacher. And so our oldest is 10, so to be 11. And since kindergarten, uh, she's been her school teacher and has taught all four of them. Um, we will make an exception this year um, where we're going to have a truly exceptional international school where all the diplomats' kids go. And just for the experience, I think we're going to let the older two go. Mm-hmm. Um, not so much because I think they'll get a better education, as I think it will just be broadening for them in a way that, that we can't provide. Yeah, It's a unique opportunity that I think we should see. Homeschooling, though, I am a teacher. I mean, that's what my degree, my undergraduate degree is in. I'm, I'm a teacher. I did my time in public high schools. Uh, I did my time teaching incarcerated youth. So I, I know how the system works. And I just said, hell no. <laughs> I'm not going to put my kids in that system. It's not that the teachers are bad. Um, you've just got such a – the number of teachers who are called to be teachers, one. Yeah. Who are gifted at it and who are not burnt out. Yeah. And who can manage to find enough wiggle room. In the system itself, to be effective teachers is very small. Yep. And honestly, I look at it, I look at the regulations that they live under, I look at the lack of support that they get on things like discipline, and I find it no wonder that they burn out and just just give up and cope. Yeah, the system just beats teachers right down to the ground. Yeah, there is no, there's no way I could function as a teacher in a public school. Um, I would either throw an administrator or a snotty kid through a window <laughs> uh, with my temperament uh, the way it is now. So uh, that, that's not in my future. <laughs> <laughs> but homeschooling allows us to do, like today, we're going to go up into the mountains of Watsonville. Uh, we're taking uh, the 22, and we're gonna, I got my flat stove fire kit. And it's not just that we're going to teach some skills. We're going to teach some physics, mm-hmm. the 10-year-old. And she's going to get it. Yep. So, yeah, homeschooling works for us. It works for us in a unique way. And I think it's the right way to do it. And I think the market is proving that out. All the people that can do homeschooling are doing so. Yeah. And what is third culture kids? Ah, right. Third culture kids. All right, you've got your first culture. Your first culture is the one you grew up in. Um, I grew up in a very stable culture. North Alabama, um, knew the same people my whole you know, childhood life. Very stable. That's my culture. That's that's what I associate with. Those are the mores, the values that I know. The military is a second culture. It is. It has its own mores. Mm-hmm. It has its own traditions. Um, now, that second culture has forced me to live in a third culture, Europe, South Asia. And so my kids, that's what they know. They know three cultures. Mm-hmm. And they are constantly having to fight for their identity as to which one they are. Are they Americans? Are they military brats? Or, in their case, you know, they spent a good bit of their formative years in Europe. Are they Europeans? Mm-hmm. They know how... My kids are completely comfortable going into a restaurant in Germany, sitting down, and accepting the service that comes in Europe, which is very different than the way we serve meals in restaurants here in America. Mm-hmm. It's just... It's different. Um, they're very comfortable. They can order... They can order... <laughs> A whole meal in German uh, and make change in the plate. 
That's pretty. So they have an identity. They love Germany. They keep asking me, can we move back to Germany? Because they loved it so much. That's pretty handy so that's for. Pretty, yeah, well, it's handy, very. It's also confusing. Um, there are some issues that result. Um, there's a great book, uniquely titled Third Culture Kids. Uh, and they've got a website and forum, I believe, that's associated with it. They, and it's not just military brats. You find the same phenomenon with missionary kids, um, with kids that grow up, oh, man, there's a big old turkey walking across the yard next door. <laughs> I'm walking around my backyard, and there's a big old Tom turkey with about a six-inch beard walking across the road across the street. Sorry, diversion. Um, third culture kids, they they tend to, they're blown to, to businesses that take their families overseas, you know, big companies like Caterpillar or Exxon, mm-hmm. where they're constantly moving around. So you'll find that as they get to those older teen years, they have a lot of identity confusion. Are they Americans? Uh, should they join the military? Maybe. I mean, if you look at just at the military statistics, I think it's something like 70 to 80 percent of those who serve, their family served. They come from a family with a military tradition. Hmm. Um, and you get to ask yourself, why is that? Well, they, they're comfortable with that culture. They know that culture. Yeah. Um, you know, my daughter told me the other day, um, uh, 10 years old, she's already talking about boys. Which, yeah. <laughs> um, but I was explaining to her, you know, you may meet someone who, want, who has never moved more than 20 miles from where they were born. And first few years, that's cool, because you're in that, you know, new flower of love, mm-hmm. but you're going to get at your feet. Your mother and I have, have kind of bred that into you. Yeah, you, absolutely. You've never lived anywhere more than two years. Um, and we're at, we're at this uh, year mark here in California, the kids are already, you know, they're getting rid of some of the toys, they're starting to pack things. <laughs> we haven't even got, we haven't done anything yet. So that third culture concept is just, it's, when you, it helps you to understand the psychology of your kids. If you're someone who does have to move around quite a bit, it's helpful to know how they view the world. Yeah. And how, what they're going to affect them. And if you're the parent of just a one culture kid, um, but they meet someone someday who isn't, or who isn't from that one culture who's from a different culture. So it's helpful to be able to smooth that transition by anticipating it, I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah. I moved around quite a bit as a kid. I, if I recall, I'd have to count this up to make sure that I'm not given some false information. But if I recall, I believe I changed school 16 times. No, it was uh, mostly moving. My my dad really uh, was bit by the by the migratory bug, and he he could only sit in one job for about a year or two, and then he'd decide he wanted to be on the other coast, and we'd pack up everything and go. You know, back before that was fashionable. Yeah, yeah, this was during the '60s, and uh, we would just pack up everything. He wouldn't have a plan. He, my dad. I, now I'm going to go off the interview and and brag about my life, but. My dad, uh, in his prime, he was a, a real serious uh, mechanical genius. 
And so anywhere he went, he could find work or he could just invent something and sell it to a business or whatever. Uh, so he had no fear of just, hey, let's go live in California. Ah, let's go live in Kentucky. Ah, let's move to, yeah, let's try living. Let's see what Arizona's like, or, you know, and off we'd go. But uh, it, to me, moving around like that, as a kid, I didn't appreciate it so much. But once yeah. I got out into the job force and I realized the diversity of an education that it had given me, uh, I realized, man, this is this really gave me an edge up on all my competition. Yeah. It just you get a different worldview seeing different parts of the world, and you don't necessarily appreciate it. I don't want to adopt much of what I saw in Germany, mm-hmm. um, but I would love to adopt their pace of life. Yeah. Uh, and, and other things like good beer. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's great. And I'm, I'm anxious to see how it plays out from younger eyes who come, who grow up and then can later tell me, hey, Dad, this was, this really stank. <laughs> or, or this worked out well, thank you. Uh, well, I appreciate you coming on the show with me. Uh, did you want to cover anything else? I am at your leisure, my friend. Okay. Um, I'm just honored to, uh, You'll have a chance to talk. Well, I, I appreciate your... Uh, I don't want to drag it out too long and bore our listeners, but and I don't want to take too much of your time. We're on a nice Saturday morning here. But uh, I do want to let you know I appreciate your coming on the show, and I appreciate all the things you've done over the years, even going back to the Boy Scouts and stuff. Man, that's a... You know, somewhere in the back of my mind, I think I read that in something that you had written, but I'd forgot it, and now it pops back up and but that's that's really amazing that you were doing that for a while but anyway other of those institutions that are dear to my heart that have strayed yeah that that just really breaks my heart because um, i have a deep deep love for boy scouts they literally literally saved my life in so many ways as a young man hmm. uh, but there's so few troops now where you can go in and it, they meet the original intent of teaching leadership in a wilderness environment, which is what Boy Scouts was originally intended to do. Right. Was to teach young men to be leaders in a wilderness setting, because wilderness setting is one of the best tools that mm. you can use um, to instruct people in leadership, in small group leadership. So I, I, that's a, I have a deep sense of loss of that. You know, they've, they've stood their ground fairly well against the cultural creep. But we live in such a litigious society. Yeah. It's almost impossible for them to meet that original intent, uh, the way I remember it anyway. And maybe it's morphed into something that's still good, and uh, I'm just an old fogey. <laughs> well, um, I got I got a few years on you on that one, but, uh, but you're catching up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you well, coming on, Mike. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me. I really had a good time. Uh, everybody be sure and check badquaker.com and um, you can hear our other interview that we did with uh, Jim not too long ago. This is the one we're doing right now is our second in the series. I don't even know if I mentioned that in the beginning or not, but this is the second in our series and we've got at least one and maybe two more lined up. Uh, one is with a former military current uh, private security and the other is with another uh, uh, police instructor. 
and hopefully we'll get those lined up for you guys and, and let you hear those. Be sure and send us feedback, uh, bad, uh, Ben at badquaker.com. And if you want to check out Mike, uh, I'll put a link on the, pay, on the Bad Quaker page where this interview is at. But uh, Mike has a blog. It's at, uh, I'm going to spell this out. It's basically, it's Captain Caveman. It's C-P-T-C-A-V-E-M-A-N dot wordpress.com. Uh, there will be a link on the page uh, where this where this interview is at on badquaker.com. Drop by, uh, read some of Mike's stuff, and I think you'll be as impressed with it as I've been over the years. Mike, again, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Ben. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, thanks a lot for listening, folks.